Well, hey, good evening, everybody. Uh, it's great to see all of you here on a Wednesday night again. Um, I, I guess this is the group that I didn't run off after last week, so that, that's, that's encouraging. Um, but, but also just uh, excited to be able to gather. I, I know um, being able to, to just to get together and study God's Word is always a blessing. Um, but just for those of you who are here, here in the room right now, just, just to know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ literally all over the world who are joining us um, this evening in these studies. Last, last week I heard from friends in a couple of different countries uh, who had tuned in and were participating in this study with us, um, as well as friends and family around the United States. So uh, if you're out there on the other side of the camera, welcome. We're glad that you're with us. And for all who are here in the room, it's great to see you all again. Um, and it's really appropriate that we have a group of uh, people interested in following Christ all over the world coming together to discuss this topic because the topic of the birth of the church is something that has implication and application for people no matter where on the planet that you are because it's Jesus' plan to, to build and to grow his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the story of how that happened over the first um, 30 or so years of the history of Christianity is told in the book of Acts. And so we've been looking at that. We began our journey last week. Um, if, if you noticed, uh, our, our study of Acts covers some 28 chapters, and we're going to do that in five weeks. So we move a little faster on Wednesday nights than we do on Sunday mornings. Um, but that's because this is an advanced placement group, right? Y'all are, are sharp and, and ready to go. And so uh, we're going to be looking again at, at Acts and, and seeing how Christianity is contagious, how it was God's plan from the start for it not just to stay in one city or in one region or be something that you go and visit like a relic in a museum, but it's a living, growing entity that the plan was that it would go to the ends of the earth. And we see that unfold in, in the pages of the book of Acts, and it's continued to unfold in the day and age in which we live. And so there's a direct connection. If the book of Acts begins what we know of as the church age, we still live in it. So there is direct connection between what we see on the pages of this history book and what we're experiencing in our lives. And, and hopefully over the course of this study, we've been able to draw some of those connections um, for each of us. But we are going to be looking at the book of Acts. So as we begin our time tonight, I want to just open us in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you so much for this incredible truth that you have given to us uh, you worked it in history. You inspired Luke to record it so that even 2,000 years later, we could recount it in such detail. And we could see this incredibly wonderful history of how the church began to grow. And in it, we see the pattern that you would even have continue today. And so we thank you, Lord. Um, for just the chance to open your word and read it tonight. Pray that you would help us to make sense of it, that your spirit would guide our time. And Lord, that we would not just become smarter as we look at the, these words or, or feel like we understand the flow of the book a little more, but, but even at a heart level, that we would have our affections stirred, that we might trust in you more and more today uh, through the picture of Jesus that we see working through the church in the first century. We thank you, and I pray a special blessing on everyone who is here tonight, um, giving up of their time um, and energy to be able to be here and, and open your word. I pray that you would bless that investment, Lord, um, just with a, a deeper picture and understanding of who you are. 
We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, inside of this study, we began last week by looking at this cross. Uh, somebody who was with us last week, where is this cross found? Rome. In, the, in which part of Rome? In the Colosseum. In the Colosseum of Rome, this cross hangs. And, and who remembers where in the Colosseum of Rome this cross is hanging? Right over the emperor's gate. So in the very spot where the emperor presided over the persecution of Christians, today there hangs a cross that shows the tremendous change that took place, um, in, is, that has taken place in the world with the expansion of the gospel around the world. And people go to this city now, um, not just to see the beautiful artwork, but, but really in many ways to go and to see how this city intersects with the growth of Christianity. Um, and people go and flock to Jerusalem uh, with great number in order to see not just the history of Israel, but to see the birth of the church and what God has done. And so um, what we're, we're looking at in the pages of the book of Acts, some of the most seminal and, and explosive events for the shape of the world as we know it and the hope that we have for eternity. So uh, there really is nothing better we could be looking at tonight and over the next few weeks. Inside of our, our study, um, we have seen in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a verse that uh, serves as somewhat of an outline for all of the book of Acts. In this verse, Jesus speaks, and we often associate this with the Great Commission, which is appropriate. It has the same heart, but it comes forward to us in this section, not so much as a command as it is a promise. It's what Jesus is going to do. He says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we see in the book of Acts is that promise takes shape. It actually happened. Those people on that mountaintop, as Jesus ascended into heaven, had the Holy Spirit come and reside upon them. The power of God came into their lives. And when it did, they were witnesses to all they had seen of Christ in Jerusalem. And then they were witnesses in the region of Judea. And then they were witnesses, we saw last week in Acts chapter 8, in the region of Samaria. And ultimately, they would go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth as they knew it, something that has gone even beyond those limits in our modern day. Um, but this is, again, it's a promise, and I think it's helpful for us to see it that way. You know, it, it, it's good for us to look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey. It's important for us to look at that. That's the command that Jesus has given to us. But it's also important to remember that that command came with a promise. And the promise is that that is what will take place. Whether we get to interact with it and participate with it will depend on how we respond by faith. But Jesus will build his church. The question is, will we be part of it? Now, we saw last week in a, uh, an overview that in the first nine chapters, the theme is that Jesus is alive and well. And we saw that really detailed a little more in, in these points last week. In the first couple of chapters, we saw that Jesus was risen. He was not retired. And then in chapters 3 through 7, we saw that it was the same Jesus, a number of the same types of things that Jesus had done in the book of Luke. We see repeated in the book of Acts through the church, a reminder that Jesus was still at work. His fingerprints, his signature was all over it. 
And not only that, though, we also saw that the same humanity existed. The same people that rejected Jesus were rejecting the first followers of Christ. And there's implications of that even as we think about our lives and experience today. Then in chapter 8, we saw that the witness of the gospel was not confined just to home, hometown, home turf for the disciples, but it would move into places like Samaria. Today, we'll see that it went beyond even the Middle East, off into other parts of the world. Um, but then we also saw in Acts chapter 9, the transformation of individual lives that took place as the gospel expanded, including the transformation of the Apostle Paul's life as he came to Christ. So this is a summary on where we were last week. If you missed last week and you would like to catch up, know that you can always go to my blog, pastormarkrobinson.com, and look for that. The most recent post has all the slides from tonight. It has the video from tonight, but it also has a link to last week's lesson as well. So if you ever want to go back, you want to look at anything that we've talked about, we'll build on that week by week, always posted to that location. So this is what we looked at last week. But this week, we're going to look at the next section of the book about the growing and going of the church in Acts chapter 9 through chapter 15. Now, when you think of this section of the book of Acts, it's helpful for us to organize at least the first sections of it by looking at people. And the reason why it's helpful is because we see at the beginning of this section a number of things related to Peter and his ministry. And then later on in this section, we see a number of things related to Paul and his ministry. But what's, what's interesting about that when we see this, I mean, at one level, we're like, well, why are we focusing on people? Aren't we, shouldn't we focus on Jesus? Well, yeah, we, we need to focus on Jesus because it is Jesus whose fingerprints were all over this. It was Jesus who was risen, not retired. It was Jesus who was working through the church. And we notice by looking throughout the book of Acts, that Jesus is the name that is consistently mentioned from chapter 1 through chapter 28. The human leaders that are used by Christ to expand that message change from different sections of the book. But Jesus stays the same. And I think that's helpful for us to, to see and to think about and to remember because we live in a day and age where celebrity pastors are a thing, Right? Maybe they've always been a thing, but they're certainly a thing today. And we might not think of it that way. That might be an offensive title to some of you. Um, it certainly would be offensive to me. I don't think of, think of uh, pastors as celebrities that way. But there is a sense where everybody has their person. And, and people will make statements like, what will happen to Church X when Pastor Y passes away? Because we've so associated churches with human leaders. But one of the things that we see that just screams at us from the book of Acts is that the human leaders came and went. Peter is mentioned extensively for a section of the book of Acts. But then he's not mentioned at all after chapter 12. Now, isn't that interesting? Right? This is Peter. This is you know, this, this guy who had all these events that, that, that are, we remember from the Gospels. And it's this guy who was a leader in the early church in the first part, and yet he just drops off the face of the earth. I mean, you might think, well, is that because he, he had died? Well, no, he, he hadn't died by the time this book is done. 
It's just that the story kept moving. The gospel kept going. It wasn't dependent upon any human leader. It was dependent upon the work of Christ who worked through a number of different human leaders. Some that we know their names and some that we don't. But Jesus was growing. And so even as we look at these sections and we're going to organize this next couple of sections around the work that Jesus did through human leaders, first Peter and then Paul, we need to remember that Peter and Paul are not the central figure, even in these sections that we have put their name at the top of. Ultimately, it is Jesus who is the one who is at work. And that ought to be an encouragement to, to us today. Um, you know what, if, if all of the, the, the pastoral staff at Wildwood um, was on a, a trip together and the plane went down, guess what would still exist? Wildwood Community Church. Why is that? Because Wildwood is not a place about a pastor. Wildwood is a place about Jesus. And there's no plane that could take him down, right? He's still flying high no matter what happens. And so we can have a confidence that the one who is ultimately on the throne and the one who is the head of the church is always the head of the church. So having said all that as a caveat, I want us to, to look at a section of the history of the church that is organized around one of the human leaders, and that is Peter. And, and we see that at the, from the end of chapter 9 through chapter 12. So what do we see about Peter, and what do we learn about what Jesus was doing through Peter in this season? Well, this section begins with a couple of different miracles that God works through Peter. The first one is found in chapter 9, verses 32 through 35, when someone by the name of Aeneas is healed of uh, paralysis. Someone who had been paralyzed for an extended period of time is, is healed of that by Peter. And then we see in chapter 9, verses 36 through 43, we see Peter used of God to resurrect Tabitha from the grave. She passed away, and Peter prayed for her, and she came back to life. Now, again, let's just pause for a moment and reflect on that. What does healing a paralytic and raising the dead sound like to you? Who do you know that has done some things like that? Jesus, right? Always a good answer. If I ask that, you know, you just, just, you're just like, I don't know, let me just throw an answer there. Jesus. Yes, it was Jesus, right? Jesus healed the paralytic on a number of different occasions. Phenomena like that. When we, we think about the, the roof that was pulled back and the gentleman that was lowered by his friends in front of Christ, and he prayed for him, and, and, and this gentleman's strength returned to his body, and he was able to get up and, and walk when he otherwise couldn't have done so. And, and who is it? who had raised the dead before. I mean, certainly there was, um, you know, Jesus himself was raised from the dead, but Jesus also resurrected some people in his earthly ministry. The, the widow's son in name comes to mind as one of those examples of a resurrection. And so we see in Peter's ministry um, in chapter 9 a couple of these miracles of something that are, are really, really significant and really, really big and really, really large. But let me ask this question. Does anybody remember from last week, so this is always dangerous to ask, but does anybody remember from last week a, a perspective 
about why some of those things might have happened in the first century at times like this, but maybe haven't continued with the same frequency or regularity today. In other words, why are there paralytics getting healed regularly and the dead being raised? Not every paralytic, not every person who died, but you know, this was not that long after Jesus' earthly ministry. So, you may remember, we, we mentioned a little bit of this last week. I know it's a big room, and I said a lot last week. It's, it's complicated. But he, this, this, is what, this is what I would, I, would, I would say, just to remind us of this. In the establishment of something new, God authenticates through miracles. This was true in the time of Moses. It was true in the time of Elijah. It was true in the ministry of Jesus. And it's true in the early church. Authenticating miracles demonstrated that because God was doing something new, he was authenticating that it was actually him who was doing it. Things that only God could do, God was doing, so that people could not ignore the fact that God was doing it. So these miracles authenticated the apostolic ministry of Peter in a way that you know, other things didn't. Certainly, Peter's credentials were impressive. He had been with Jesus three years. He had walked on water. I mean, that's street cred that most of us don't have, right? He had done a number of things like that. But these authenticating miracles, even after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, demonstrated that, that, that God was still with Peter. Once again, after the church is established and after the scripture is delivered, important second piece, there was no New Testament at this moment. The events were still transpiring. The history had not yet been recorded. It was being lived, not written. In that era, when those things were happening, there was authenticating miracles that accompanied the ministry of the apostles to authenticate it so that the signature of Christ could be seen clearly in their work and in their ministry. So we see that happening here with Peter. Today, the authentication comes in part through the historical record of the Scripture, verified in history, as well as the work of the Spirit in our lives. Um, and, and God certainly is capable and able to do miraculous things around the world as He deems necessary. He owes us no explanation or apology if He chooses to work in such a way. But we should not expect it to happen with the same frequency of when the new covenant is established and something new is being enacted by God. So it begins with these miracles. But what happens next around Peter's ministry? Well, we see Peter begin to minister to the Gentiles. Now, this is something that uh, in the early stages of Peter's ministry, he was ministering almost primarily or exclusively to uh, Jewish people, or at least in Jewish locations. So Peter was, you know, doing his thing, and the church was growing. Remember that promise that Jesus gave in Acts 1-8? Where did it begin? In, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In the second place, in Judea, right? So Peter is living out that promise in Jerusalem and in Judea. And as he is doing that, they're, they're experiencing this explosive growth in the church, and all these exciting things are happening. Thousands of people are coming to faith. Um, and it might have been possible for the church to just get content, right? I mean, to think that they went from just a few people on a hillside, fishermen following who they thought was a Savior, 
to leading a movement of thousands of people following one who was resurrected, who they saw ascend into the sky, that is, that, that's enough for people to just relax for a while, right? And they began to kind of do that. They, they were settling into their life, they were settling into their ministry, and they were enacting that from the city of Jerusalem. But God used something to leverage the church out of that one geographic location and push them around the rest of the world. You know what that was? Persecution. The church had begun to settle in one spot. And so when the persecution begins around the city of Jerusalem, including the stoning of Stephen that we saw last week, the church begins to move, in part because it's no longer comfortable to stay in the Middle East. And as they move, they take the gospel with them. And yet there was a problem. And the problem was the people who were carrying this message that was being driven by persecution, that were carrying that to continue the fulfillment of Jesus' promise, the people who were carrying that had a mindset that needed to change. See, they heard Jesus say, you will be my witnesses everywhere to the ends of the earth. They, they heard Jesus said, go, go make disciples of not just Israel, but go make disciples of all nations. They, they heard that. They, we know they heard it because they, they would write it down later on for us to read in Scripture. They remembered it. But the challenge was that their mindset was still a Jew-first mindset. That's just the way it was. They, they'd grown up that way. If you were going to be rightly connected to God, you would be Jewish. That's the way they grew up. And so there was this ethnocentric view that they had. Um, and because of that, they were reluctant to interact in any meaningful ways with those outside of the Jewish world. And there was this expectation that if anybody was to begin to follow Christ, they might have to first become Jewish before they could gain full access inside the church. And so this was not just a, a fringe idea, but this was something that had infiltrated the very leaders of the church, and it was something that was being wrestled with in the first century. So what does God do? What does Jesus do to shake this up? Well, first of all, he gets them moving. And second of all, he begins to shape the perspective of the leaders of the church. There's some really significant things that God's going to do and demonstrate to show them that people do not have to become Jewish first in order to have access to God, but they could go directly to God through Christ alone. How did that happen? Well, it happened in Acts 10 by Peter being called to go minister to a guy named Cornelius. Now, some of you who are familiar with Acts 10, who is Cornelius? You may know what Cornelius' job was. He was a centurion. What, what does that mean? Century means how many? Hundred, right? This was a guy who led a bunch of soldiers. He was a person of significant influence. Now, if you were a centurion in the first century, who was your boss? Caesar. So you're talking about a Roman, Gentile, guy working for the man, right? The man that's not in favor of the explosion of the church, the, the growth of the church. Peter gets an invitation to go talk to Cornelius. Now, what did it take for Peter to go talk to Cornelius? Well, it took an act of God. 
It took an act of God. Peter was not looking at the, the, the Rolodex of everybody who was, you know, in the who's who of first century Palestine to find the movers and shakers that he would meet and go meet with them and share the gospel, to invite them to the, the banquet or, or whatever. That, that's, that's not what was happening. Um, Cornelius was not on Peter's radar, but he was on God's radar. God wanted to get the gospel to Cornelius. And, and it has a little bit to do, we could spend a lot of time talking about this, we won't, but it seems like Cornelius, uh, his perspective, he had responded favorably to the revelation of God that he had seen, both what he had heard as somebody leading troops in the Middle East, but also um, just maybe what he had seen even in nature and other things. Whatever reason, he, he was somebody who would be considered a God-fearer, somebody who was open to the God of the Bible. And so God has Cornelius on his radar, and he wants to get the gospel to him. And so it does not take a single act of God. It takes at least two acts of God to connect Peter and Cornelius. The first act of God is that Cornelius has to be initiated with by God. And so God gives a, a vision to Cornelius, and he says, you need to go and get this guy, or send, your, send your, your man and go get Peter and bring him back and have him tell you what's up about Jesus. And then he has to do the same thing to Peter. He gives Peter a vision and says, Peter, some people are going to come, and they're going to invite you to go and meet with Cornelius, and I, I want you to go and follow and, and share Christ. Now, there's some other things, and there were some animals in, the, in this vision and all, all those kinds of things, but clearly the biggest implication of this was the gospel going to the Gentiles. It was not about the end of the dietary restrictions. It's ultimately primarily about the gospel going to Gentiles. And we know that because... Peter makes this statement um, when, he, when he considers everything that he saw and experienced in that vision. He summarizes it in 1034. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I mean, Peter's own words, his understanding of that vision and those animals and that sheet, if you're like, I don't understand what that's talking about, understand at least as much as Peter did. The gospel was to go directly to the nations, and they did not have to become Jewish first in order to connect to God, but they would go through Christ just as Jewish people did. So, acts of God happen to connect Cornelius and Peter. Peter shows up, they have this awkward exchange, and then Peter gets to his message. At some point, I would invite you to, to look at verses 34 through 43 that describe the message that Peter proclaimed to Cornelius and his household. And, and I want us not just to see what he says, but I want us to remember what he didn't say. Can you imagine a, a Jew in the first century, what you might have thought about the Roman soldiers, what you might have thought about a centurion, what you might have thought about his politics, what you might have thought about the things that have been done under the flag that he fought under? Can you only just imagine all of the things that Peter might have wanted to unload in that moment when he's face-to-face -face at his own admission? He, he says to him when he shows up at his house, he says, it's not really normal or standard for me to be in your home. It's a great introduction, by the way. You know, it's just it's this totally awkward, weird, strained interaction. But 
after he gets through that, he doesn't then begin to unload on the politics of the day. He doesn't unload about the things that they have that are different. He doesn't get into X, Y, and Z and make it all about that. Peter understood the humility in that moment. I'm not here to debate those things. I'm here to point this man to Jesus. And he does. And guess what happens? Cornelius responds in faith. And guess who else responds? All of Cornelius' friends and family that he had invited over. I mean, the influence of Cornelius. And, and here they are in, in Caesarea, this beautiful little seaside town. Um, and, and there's a revival that is breaking out among Cornelius and his family. Now, after that revival breaks out, the Holy Spirit comes. And in verses 44 through 48, in a dramatic way, it says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. What happened in that moment, friends? was among the Gentiles, in the presence of Peter, the Spirit comes in a demonstrable way, and another Pentecost moment happens. Again, if you were with us last week, what happened in Samaria? Remember, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the Gentile world. When the Holy Spirit comes in Jerusalem, in Judea, what happened? Acts 2. This Pentecost moment, in a demonstrable way, the Spirit shows up, undeniably. In Acts chapter 8, they believe in Jesus, but the Spirit hasn't yet come until the disciples show up, including Peter. They, they pray for them, and then the Holy Spirit comes. What was happening? Was it about the delay for the Samaritans? No, it was about the delay for Peter to see it. Guess what, Peter? The gospel believed leads to the Spirit indwelling people before they ever become full Jews, even among the Samaritans. And what happens in Acts 10? The same thing happens among the Gentiles. Jesus is teaching the leadership of his church that what he said was going to happen was going to happen. And he demonstrated it in such a dramatic way that they could not deny it. So much so that Peter looks at it and he says, hey, we don't need to wait for anything else to happen. I mean, this, you guys are, the Spirit is clearly here. Let's, there's some water. Let's baptize you. And then Peter leaves from that point and, and he goes back to Jerusalem in and, and chapter 11 and he begins to describe what he saw and immediately he's, he's met with some opposition. People are like, wait, 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 Peter. We didn't have the vision. We didn't have the dream. We didn't see what happened. And so we're doubting that what you're saying is real, that Gentiles, without becoming Jews, have the same spirit that you and I have. So Peter explains the whole story to him. He walks through the vision. He walks through what he saw. He walks through the message he preached. He walks through the transformation he saw in their lives. And after all that, guess what, guess what he, they're able to say? Those leaders of the church in Jerusalem go, Peter, you're right. What you're saying and how you're describing it, we believe it too. That people can have direct access to God through Jesus, not through becoming a part of our club. And that was this massive, massive shift in this big change.
Now, one other thing just to mention in the section about Peter. We also have in this section um, persecution ramping up. Again, it wasn't just uh, persecution that happened to Stephen with his stoning and death, but persecution actually continued, and we pick up that storyline a little bit in chapter 12 as we learn of a number of different things centering around Herod. Now, this is not Herod the Great. This is one of Herod the Great's kids, Herod Agrippa, who would be one of the leaders of a portion of King Herod the Great's land in, in the Middle East. Um, and he gets sideways with the church, and, and he kills James, the apostle, in the first five verses of chapter 12. And it gets him some, you know, kudos from Jewish leaders in the Middle East. And so he decides, well, if I get a little kudos just for, for killing James, just imagine what they'll say about me if I take out Peter as well. So he arrests Peter. Um, but then in chapter six or chapter 12, verses 6 through 19, Peter is in prison and he's awaiting his execution. Uh, the church is praying for him and then he is released. Again, for the sake of time, we don't have an opportunity to get into all of those details, but I, I just would invite you at some point, if you haven't already done so, to, to read the account of Peter's release from prison in order to see something uh, that I think is significant. Their lack of expectation and their limited belief. Sometimes we think, if I pray and I believe it hard enough, that's what will make it happen. But in this instance, Peter is in prison, probably praying for God's will to be done and for his release. But this text tells us that when the angel gets him up and walks him out of prison, he thinks he's just having a dream. His expectation is not that he's going to get out. It's so much so that he thinks this must be an, an aberration that I'm seeing, not a true release. The church that was praying for him on the outside, they, Peter walks to the house where they're meeting to pray, and he knocks on the door. And they say, who is it? And so he says, it's Peter. And the servant goes back and says, hey, guess what, everybody? Peter's out there. And the group that is praying for his release says, no, he's not. He's in prison. How intense was their belief? Did they believe that God could release him? I do believe they believed that. Did they think he would? Probably not. doesn't seem like that was their expectation. And yet God does it. An incredible, encouraging reminder for us who have limited belief as well in the things that we're trusting God for in our lives. Um, but we see some of that laid out in this situation. And then at the end of this section, Herod dies. And I, I think that you know, he dies this terrible death consumed by worms in response to unbelief and this terrible actions that he's done earlier in the chapter and his arrogance that's demonstrated in a number of different ways. But I do think that Luke included that inside of this to, to demonstrate that it does not pay to oppose the work that God is doing, right? He, we don't always see that end. It doesn't always show up so tidy inside of a chapter, but we see it play out here, um, and it's significant. Now, all that said, all of this about Peter, what are some responses that you and I might take away from this section? Well, one of the responses I want us to see is this. Know that God will intervene to get his will accomplished. Know that God will intervene to get his will accomplished. God is not limited by me and you. Again, we see this in the church. It's a promise. You will be my witnesses, church, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. If we disobey, if we opt out, Jesus will continue to build his church. 
but we miss out on the opportunity for him to build it through us. And in this instance, Jesus was intent on taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, even if the disciples didn't have a good strategic plan to get it there. He just made it happen. And the way that he made it happen was through events like Peter's interaction with Cornelius. It's just a reminder that when we think of verses like Romans 8, um, that, that God works together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, and we, we think of that, and, and oftentimes we think of that and, and apply that in, in really personal ways, like I'm going to get what I want, you know. Uh, and and there's, there's a sense where God does bless us with a number of things. But even think about this in relation to the church. Jesus is going to work together all of these world events, some of them that look awful to us. He'll work them together to accomplish his purposes. Um, his church is being built, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, including anything that's happening in your newsfeed right now. Just a great reminder that God is at work, and we seem to know that. We can rest in that. Second thing that I think we need to see and remember inside of this section, though, is this. Uh, explaining the supernatural intervention of God when it happens and when it does not. I just want to, again, point our attention to the fact that in these verses, in chapter 12 alone, we have a situation where we have... Um, James, who is killed for his faith, and Peter, who is released. How do you explain that? Does God love Peter more than James? No, I don't think that's it. How do we explain it? What, what nice little neat bow could we tie up on the top of it to have it all make sense to us? And we see it just to perfectly play out. I can't do that for you. I just want to introduce the category that though God can intervene in particular ways in every situation, he doesn't always intervene in the way that we want him to. But he's still good and he knows more than we do. And we must just rest in that. How is it that Tabitha gets resurrected from the dead, but James stays dead? Was Tabitha more valuable to the proclamation of the gospel? James was a disciple for crying out loud. Why is it that one happens one way and it doesn't happen that way in another situation? I can't stand up here tonight and tell you I know exactly why that is. There's, there's some mystery and there's some frustrations, but the frustration is because we just can't get it. If we could, God probably would have told us more. But our brains are just limited. And our understanding is limited, but the God who knows more than we do, the God who is always good, the God whose plans always are, are for his glory and for our good, those are the ones that will work out. And so we can pray with confidence. We can pray with whatever limited faith that we have, and we can trust God to work his plans, which are always better than ours. A couple of the responses that we see, and we see this from the section related to, to Peter. But I want us to keep going, and I want us to look at now a section related to Paul. Now, there's some overlap. You know, if, if you are uh, mixing audio, uh, oftentimes, I, I was a journalism major, and so we would mix audio. And so when you go from one song to another on the radio or, or something like that, you, you have faders. And you take this fader, and you, you begin to move it down while you move another one up, and it makes this nice, smooth transition of music uh, between, between songs. In the same way... The song of redemption that Jesus is playing in the world related to the building of the church has the slider of Peter going down from chapters 11 and 12. At the same time, the slider of Paul going up. 
Again, it's not Peter or Paul who's the star. It's ultimately Jesus who is doing it all. But the human leader who is at the center of the story that is being described goes from Peter to Paul in that space in 11 and 12. Now, we, we see that begin to play out for us uh, in, in chapter 11, beginning in verse 19. Now, it happens where the Apostle Paul shows up in the city of Antioch. Now, it's important for us to know that there are a number of different Antiochs. So, when we look, even in the verses we're going to look at tonight, there were a number of different Antiochs. In a minute, I'll, I'll put a map up and you'll see it. But there was an Antioch in the region of Syria, and there was an Antioch in the region of Galatia. It was the Antioch in the region of Syria that began to experience the growth of a Gentile-dominant church. And that begins to happen and is described in Acts 11. And, and as that church begins to grow, the disciples in Jerusalem hear about it. And they say, we need to send some of our folks up there to see what's happening in Antioch and to coach them and to disciple them and to, to help it take off. And so one of the ones they sent from Jerusalem up to Antioch was this guy named Barnabas. Now Barnabas shows up in Antioch and he looks around and he goes, whoa, God is doing something big in the city of Antioch. And he's like, I need some help. I, I, need, I need to bring in someone else to help me shepherd this young congregation. But instead of going back south to Jerusalem, he goes north and west to the city of Tarsus. And he goes and gets Paul, who had spent at that point about a decade or more up in, up in Tarsus. So Saul had this experience we saw last week through his conversion in Acts chapter 9. But from Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 11 is a decade. It's a long period of time. He left the Middle East because people didn't trust him and he, he needed to grow up and his theology was still being put together by God in this, this amazing way. If you were with us in the Galatians series, we kind of detailed the timeline of Paul's life. But know that he spent a decade in Tarsus probably wondering if his ministry was just going to be local in the city of Tarsus. Like he didn't know. God had told him, you're going to be my witness among the Gentiles. And he might have thought, well, I guess that's just Gentiles that live around Tarsus. For 10 years, that's what he did. But at the end of that 10-year period of time, and remember, Paul didn't know that it was just going to be 10 years. Paul's just doing his thing up there. Barnabas shows up and says, Paul, come on, I need you. And Paul packs his bag and takes off. And Paul and Barnabas become this amazing Batman and Robin team, right? And they head over to Antioch, and they begin to disciple that church. And so Paul comes back on the scene. Again, in our Bibles, it looks like a chapter or two. In historical timeline, it's about 10 years. Um, and then he shows up in, in, in Antioch. Now, after he shows up in Antioch and he gets established there, uh, he, he begins to take on some leadership roles. So he goes down to Jerusalem uh, to help uh, you know, bring an offering to a famine that is taking place in, in, in Jerusalem at that time. Again, in, in our Galatians series, we talked a little bit about that. But then after that experience down in Jerusalem, he goes back to Antioch. And then we, we get this, uh, begin to see these three movements that Paul is most famous for, really four. And, and it will dominate the rest of our study of the book of Acts. It's these four movements of what God did through Paul around the world. The first is the first missionary journey. We're going to look at that tonight. Then there was the, guess what comes after the first one? The second missionary journey. We're going to look at that Two weeks from now, when we come back. And then there's a 
third missionary journey. You guys are Bible scholars. It's the third missionary journey. We're going to look at that in about three weeks. And then after that, there's a, that's not the fourth one. It's, it's his trials um, that take him all the way to Rome. So that is kind of the arc of the remainder of the book of Acts, but it it's, it's details what Jesus is doing through Paul in, in that season. And in his first missionary journey, it begins in the city of Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas and a guy named John Mark are set aside for this task and commissioned to take the gospel outside of their native area. And so they take off and they go by boat to Cyprus. And then after they leave Cyprus, they go up into what we would consider to be Turkey today. And in that area, they, they take the gospel to a number of different places, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, another place called Derby. Those are names of places that we're not as familiar with, but we need to know that we are familiar with the state in which those places resided. And that was the region or the, the area of Galatia. So the first missionary journey of Paul is an introduction in Cyprus to world missions and then ministry in the Galatian region. That is the first missionary journey of Paul. If you, you ever wondered, like, what, what is this first missionary journey all about? It's about the gospel going to Galatia. Why do we know about Galatia? Because Paul wrote him a letter, and we know it as the letter to the Galatians, right? It's all of these cities, Paul writes a letter to be circulated among them, and he writes it to them after he takes this trip. So Galatians is actually the first of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote. It's the earliest thing we have that he wrote, and he wrote it after this trip. So what happened in these areas? Uh, the answer to that is, is a lot, but just to orient again, here is a map of, of the Middle East um, in, in that time. And so right here is Antioch in Syria. This was the location. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is where it began. It says they went down to uh, Seleucia. There they got on a boat. They go over to Cyprus. You see mentioned the city of Salamis and Paphos, and then they go up into Turkey, and they go to Perga and Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Derby and Lystra and all of these little towns, right? So this kind of orients you to, to where they went, and then at the end of that trip, they go back to Antioch and report what happened. So the first missionary trip actually didn't cover that wide of a geographic swath, and it was mostly focused in one state, really the next state over. So the gospel at that point still had not made it to Europe. That'll be the second missionary journey. It was just taking it to the next state. It, it would be as if, if, the, if the gospel began in Oklahoma City, um, Samaria, it made it to Wichita, um, Antioch, it made it to Kansas City, and then the first missionary trip went from Kansas City up to Des Moines, right? That, that's that's kind of, when you think about it from our perspective, that's where it went. Only all of those were countries, not states. So that was kind of the experience of the gospel on this first trip. What happened in those locations? Well, two things happened, uh, primarily. There was revival that broke out, and there was opposition that developed. The revival that broke out, everywhere they went, people believed. And they trusted in Christ, and they, they, they made him... Their, their Savior, and, and churches began to grow. There would be no letter to the Galatians had there not been revival on this trip, right? 
the fact that Paul writes a letter after this trip in 48 AD and sends it to this region is evidence that, what we, that something happened. And the story of what happened in that area that began those churches is described in chapters 13 and 14. And so we see, you know, Pisidian Antioch, we see the revival that breaks out, and then we see opposition that develops. In Iconium, revival breaks out, opposition develops. Lystra, revival breaks out, opposition develops. And then there's a mention of what happens in Derby. And so you see this pattern just begin to develop. It's important to note, and we'll, we'll reflect on this a little more in a moment, but part of the reason why opposition developed was because revival broke out. People don't oppose insignificant things. You ever thought about that? I mean, if, if, it, if it's insignificant, why even, why even bother with it? Just let it exist off in its own little universe and world. But if it becomes something that is significant, then it is dealt with by those who would oppose it. Those who opposed the development of the church in the Galatian region were unbelieving Jews. In chapter 13 and 14, it is very clear that the opposition to the church was not, um, in, in, in that region, was not Gentiles, but it was primarily a Jewish-based opposition. The same spirit that had rejected Christ was now rejecting Christ's followers, even among Jewish leaders. And again, you think about the proximity of that region to the Middle East. It was very geographically contiguous, and there were a number of Jews that lived in that area. So there were synagogues in those cities. That's actually where the ministry would start. Paul and Barnabas, John Mark, show up in a town. They'd go to the synagogue, right? And in the synagogue, they would teach anybody who was there. And people would begin to respond. And so in this region, uh, that's what is happening, and there's opposition. And Verses like Acts 14.2 make it very clear. It says, The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. They were so jealous of the growth of the Jesus movement through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas that they just couldn't take it, and they wanted to, to stamp it out. So we have the first missionary journey of Paul. And again, a great thing for you to read and to see, but, but that's, that's the big thing. They went to the Galatian region, revival breaks out, and there's opposition. Paul is stoned there, um, nearly killed um, in, in Lystra, um, and yet they just kept going. Um, and we see that, that play out. So in light of all this, what are some responses to this part of Paul's ministry in this section? Well, the first thing that I want us to see, and this is the third response, because the first two are related to Peter, the third response in this whole section is that we should embrace the missionary heart of the church. Why is it that Wildwood is interested in the gospel not just being proclaimed in these halls, but ultimately in impacting our city, ultimately in impacting our nation, ultimately in impacting places around the world where the gospel is not known? Why do we even care about that? Is it because we've just become some globally-minded thing influenced by the Internet? No, it's because from the very beginning, from the very beginning, the mission of the church included a scope of the whole world. Jesus said, I'm going to take my message, and my followers will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And if we want to be with Jesus, and we do desperately, 
here at Wildwood. We want to be with him wherever he is. And that includes caring about places that we might not even know otherwise. God, here in the hallway, there's a, there's a map. And on that map, people have put dots over the years where there's a location they've visited, prayed for, a missionary they support in that region. And there are dots literally all over the world and every continent, except Antarctica. Somebody really needs to get a heart for the good penguins of Antarctica. But, you know, you think about um, just this, that's just in one little geographic location. Why does that exist? Well, I think it, it's reflective of people who are following Christ. Christ is not local. He is local in the sense he's with us, but he also cares about the world. And so if we are following Christ, then his heart for the world ought to show up in our lives in some way. It doesn't necessarily mean that we're going and traveling. I mean, who can go and travel in this area anyway, right? But we certainly can pray, we can give, we can be educated about what God is doing around the world. As a church, we have the privilege of partnering with so many different people in different areas. And if you want to know more about that, um, you know, we're, some of that sensitive information, we're being recorded tonight. I, I'm not going to share that from this stage. But I'd love to introduce you to some of my friends if you're looking for someone to pray for and get behind because the gospel is going and it's part of the missionary heart of God. And we see it right here um, from the church. As the church is founded, Jesus, through persecution, gets it going, but in Antioch, they realize, hey, we don't have to wait until we're beaten to leave town. We're going to leave town to get a beating, right? I mean, they, 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 they were so committed to this task that they even pushed through significant opposition because it was so important that the gospel go into those different areas. Embrace the missionary heart of the church. And a fourth response from these verses we might pull is this, with influence comes opposition. With influence comes opposition. It's amazing to me how, you know, people sometimes think, well, I, what, I, what I want is I, I want, you know, to be successful in, in anything. But don't you know that with success comes opposition? We, we understand this in, in, every, in every form and fashion, right? In the business world, your business grows, and in some sense it becomes a target. People want to outdo you. They want to, they want to take it down. They want to belittle it. They want to attack it in some way. Um, it's because it's significant. It's making a difference. In the same way, as the church grows in influence, opposition will happen. If a church exists in a city and there's never any controversy around it, it's possible that the church is not really making a difference in the city. There ought to be some opposition that comes. Now, we don't need to go looking to pick a fight, but it does mean that when fights come over the right issues, it doesn't mean that we're doing it wrong. It could very well mean we're doing it right. Opposition follows influence. If we want to see the influence of Christ grow, we need to be prepared for that. And, and that's increasingly relevant in our world because the world is, that we live in, if, if we've had a, you know, some kind of restraint that, is, that has been kind of a general Judeo-Christian moral ethic that has kind of encompassed our country, that is being cracked away. And what's left is just sinful human hearts, which has always been there, but they've been kind of constrained by some social societal expectations. As those things get pulled away, if the church continues to be the church, we should expect opposition if we are, in, if we are being an influence. And so we just need to be prepared for that and know that it doesn't mean that we're doing it wrong. It very well could mean that we're doing it right. So it begins with Peter in this section, then it moves on to Paul. What comes next? Mary, right? You're thinking of that. Somebody, 1960s dad, you're watching at home, Peter, Paul, Mary. Anybody? Okay. Uh, no, uh, that's not where we're going to go with this. 
Uh, what we're gonna, where we're going to go is where the passage goes, and that's in Acts 15, first 35 verses. We see this really amazing church meeting that happens. And it's not a worship service, it's a meeting. And, and I know some of you have grown up in an environment where church meetings are like the worst thing ever. You know, like you just think of a church, you're like, oh, can anything possibly good happen at that committee meeting? Like, I will serve and do whatever you want me to do, Lord, just don't put me on a committee in church X, Y, or Z, right? I mean, some of us have had experiences like that, and we think about that. But what we see in Acts 15, friends, is this amazing thing that happens in a church meeting. It happens not as they're worshiping, it happens as they get together and they are thinking strategically about what Christ is doing. It's possible for there to be amazing things to happen over a time of strategic planning and evaluation. We see that in Acts 15. So the church gets together, and, and the issue of, of Acts 15 is what will be the next step. If you, if you were at Wildwood on Sunday, um, I preached on this passage, Acts 15, and so you can go back and get more in-depth on it if you want to go back and listen to the podcast. Um, but there was a debate of what the next appropriate step should be. So as more and more Gentile background people are trusting in Christ, that debate that was being kicked around in 11 after Cornelius' conversion with his family has become a full-blown controversy. And there were some within the church who were saying, that the next step for anybody that says, I want to follow God, is that they must become a Jew first. And then after they become Jewish, then they can become a Christ follower. There were some who were making that argument. Those who were, who were promoting that, primarily it says in Acts 15, uh, verse 5, were from the background of the Pharisees. Not all former Pharisees, but apparently a number of them were thinking this. On the other side is an argument that says that people can approach God directly and their first step is just belief in Christ. They don't have to become a Jew first. They just they don't have to become a Jew at all. They just have to be a Christ follower. If they trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and for their hope for eternity, that they have direct access to God just as somebody from a Jewish background would have. Without any other pomp and circumstance, without any other ceremony, without any other ritual, without any other following of creed or code, there was a direct access. That position was being argued by Peter and also by Paul and by Barnabas. And Peter, Paul, and Barnabas not only give a very adept theological argument in favor of their position, something that they had, had influenced them directly from Jesus himself, who had communicated the gospel clearly to Peter and had communicated the gospel we saw in our study of Galatians to Paul as well, but not only through that, the theological explanation, but also practically. Remember, Peter had seen Cornelius' family come to Christ and have the Spirit of God come reside on him, and that, that's, that's what Peter is saying. He says, hey guys, remember, we have already had this conversation. We, we saw it happen. And so, if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. And, and, and Paul and Barnabas say, and we just took a, a trip. We went all through this whole region of Galatia, and everywhere we went, we preached the gospel. And as we preached the gospel in all these little burgs and all these little hamlets, people were coming to Christ, and the Spirit of God was coming to reside within their hearts and lives. If God is doing that, why would we go back and add extra hard, complicated steps? They're already coming to Christ. Let's, let's not make it difficult for them. And so Peter and Paul and Barnabas make this argument, and then after they make that argument, 
And after the Pharisees present their argument, James, the brother of Jesus, um, is like the, the judge who's presiding over the trial, right? The, the jury is the apostles. Uh, James is, is hearing this and this deliberation. And James makes this statement in Acts 15, verse 19 through uh, 21. He says this, he says, Therefore it is my judgment that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them, and, and he goes on, but he says, let's not trouble them. Let's not make them become Jews. Let's not require that they're circumcised. Let's allow them to have direct access to God through faith in Christ. Because that seems to be what both Jesus said and what history has shown us is actually happening. Let's, let's not complicate this. Let's keep it simple and keep it focused on Christ. But then he keeps talking, right? And so this is the confusing thing for us, right? Just, just acknowledge, let's acknowledge that we're all going to get a little bit confused about what he's getting ready to say. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should trouble them with these things, right? It's, what, what is he doing? Why, why does he say, you know, this and then comma and then keeps going? Well, we'll talk about it, but this is what he says. He says, but we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. What? Right? I mean, that, if, if you fully get that, you're in the 1%, right? Or, or you've done some deep dive study on this. It's complicated and it's confusing for us. But it's helpful for us to think about what the end result of this would be. See, James understood, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that in order to preserve unity in the church, they needed to keep the gospel clean and pure. But then they needed to make an appeal to their brothers and sisters in Christ to step away from areas of liberty for the sake of Christian unity. And so he writes to these Gentile believers, James does, on behalf of the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. He says, guys, if you've trusted in Jesus, you're all square with him. But for the sake of unity in the church, I want you to curb some of your freedoms so that you can gather in congregations with Jewish background people. And we don't have a Jewish, former Jewish church and a former Gentile church, but we can have a Jesus church. We're going to keep Jesus central. And the way that we do that is by you choosing to walk away from your freedoms in certain areas. And so he lists, you know, the top four hit list of the things that would have caused division in the first century over things that Gentiles would have felt the freedom to do. Now, the sexual morality being the exception of that list, but the others, that issues of freedom, that they would step into that. Why do I believe so strongly that this is a unity push? Well, first of all, because it's consistent with the gospel push of the first half of the statement. It helps make sense of that. But second of all, because of what he says in verse 21. For from ancient generations, Moses... Who was Moses teaching? The Jewish background folks, right? Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. The law has been taught so extensively in this section, in this region, that it is almost going to be next to impossible for somebody from a Jewish background to tolerate being in congregation with somebody who's eaten food that's got blood in it, 
So don't do it. That's what he's telling us. Now, if if we begin to think of it and understand it that way, then suddenly something that seems very distant from us becomes very relevant to application for our lives. When we think of what unites us as a church, what unites us is Jesus, right? We're not going to make it difficult for people to come to faith by adding to it a bunch of other stuff. We're not going to do that because that's not the gospel. You know, we live in a world that would tell us that in order to get unity, what we need to do is have everybody agree on a bunch of secondary things. You realize that plan has never, ever worked? If you can think of a place where it's worked, that everybody has just, you know, on a bunch of secondary issues, seen eye to eye on everything, then come and let's talk about it afterwards. I don't think that that exists. It's a fairy tale. It's a myth. Places where there is unity, it's when people realize that there is something bigger than them. It's not an individual freedom. It's in something bigger than themselves. It's not what's in it for me. It's what, what are we going to do in this together? And when there is something so compelling out in front of us, then we can unite under that. We can unite under Jesus. We cannot unite under who we voted for, right? We, we can unite under Jesus. We cannot unite over who has the best salsa in Norman, right? We, we can't, there, are, there are things that we just can unite on. There are things that we will disagree upon. But we need to remember that principle um, when we think about gathering. And, and so what that is going to require is not for everybody else to think like you do. It's going to require you to walk away from your preferences in certain areas in order to preserve the unity of the church and others. You know, Greg is sitting back here. He just snuck in. Uh, Greg's our worship pastor. Amazing guy. I love getting to work with him. But I, I've often thought that worship ministry is one of the most challenging ministries because everybody's got a different favorite, right? A favorite song, a favorite style of that song. You know, a few couple years ago, I, 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 we did a family feud style game for our staff at Christmas time. And I, I asked like 50 Wildwood people to give me their favorite worship song. You know what the number one vote getter was? I don't even remember the song, but it only had three votes. That was the number one answer on the big board. You know what that means? That means it's impossible for him to lead us in everyone's favorite song every week. So when we get together... We can't get together and say, I'm going to worship if my favorite song and my favorite style is what's sung. We get together if we say, we're going to get together under Jesus. And where we proclaim Christ in music and prayer and passage, that's where we find our unity. It's not in a style. It's not in a pastor reading my favorite passage. It's not in him teaching it the way that I want him to. It's not in him being entertaining or, or whatever it might be. It's not in the perfect temperature in the room. How many of you have ever had your perfect temperature in this room? It doesn't happen, right? You're freezing or you're or you're hot all the time. This is just what happens, right? We, we can't, we, it's just impossible to have this, everything work out perfectly for people, but we walk away from those things. And those are all in trivial things. There's more, there's bigger things too. But we unite under the person of Christ. And we see that played out even as the church is forming in its very early stages in Acts 15. Last two responses I want to share tonight. This one, first one in this section know and share the first step. If the Jerusalem Council makes it clear to us that the first step is for people to believe in Christ, then here's what we need to do. We need to remember 
that if somebody comes up to you or you're engaging in conversation with someone and you see that window or they ask you the question, I'm interested in getting right with God, what do I do next? That, that we know where we go. Their first step is to take them right back to the person of Jesus. You believe in him. That's where it begins. We don't trouble them by giving them a political ideology to buy into. We don't trouble them by giving them an 18-part course they have to complete. Some of those things can be helpful, but ultimately they begin their faith journey with Jesus, not with the other things we might add to him, and we need to remember that. And not only for ourselves, but also for the message that we share with others. And the second thing that we would see in this section, the sixth thing overall in this passage is this, to pursue unity in the church by curbing your freedoms. We actually have something that we can do about it, and it's not in getting everybody else to think like we do. It's actually by our willingness to step away. Now, when I say that, some of you are going, yeah, but the thing I care about is really important. And you know what? There are some things that we need to care about and are worth breaking fellowship over. But there are a lot of things we break fellowship over that are not worth caring that much about. They're just not. I, I, I've seen stuff in the last year that I never thought I would see. Families that are being torn apart in their fellowship with one another over things that I wouldn't even consider secondary. I would consider tertiary or on down the list. How does that happen? How does it happen? What happens when we forget that we unite under something that is much, much, much bigger and greater than my freedoms or what I'm capable of? Jesus is better than any of that. When we get together as a church, we, we find that unity by making his mission and his glory and his preference and his will at the center of it all. So far, we have seen that Jesus is alive and well. And we have seen that the church is not only growing, but it's growing because his followers are going and taking the gospel to the end of the earth. In two weeks, I say two weeks because next week is spring break. You didn't know that this class got a spring break, right? Everybody's going to be wild and crazy next week, I know. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll have a couple of weeks off, or one week off, and then two weeks from today, we'll be back on the 24th, and we're going to talk about planting and difficulty. The planting of the church in Europe, in places like Philippi and Corinth and Ephesus, um, but, but also the difficulty that Paul was going through that might map a little bit to some difficulties that we experience as well. So we're coming up to some really great stuff there uh, in two weeks. We'd love to have you join us then. Let me pray for us as we wrap up. Lord, thanks, thanks for tonight. Thanks for the scripture and the truth that is found in it. Thank you for the encouragement that we have. And uh, Lord, I, I pray that just as we read your word and as we see it unfold here, that um, we would just be reminded of the promise that you are building your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. That we will be your witnesses as we stick with you in Norman, in Oklahoma, and to the ends of the earth. We thank you so much that we can be a part of that. And we thank you for just the chance to, to reflect on that a little more tonight. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, friends, thanks so much for being with us tonight here in the room and online. And remember, we will not meet next Wednesday, but two weeks from now we'll be there. And if you would like to, to go back and interact anymore with this material or all the slides, again, PastorMarkRobinson.com, Mark with a K, you can um, go there and, and access uh, all the material that we covered tonight as well as the video. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you in a couple weeks.